0: Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN Veterans Broadcast Network with host General David Grange and co-host Ranger Doug. Here's Ranger Doug.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to our 27th program on Veterans Radio R2.0. This is our 12th program in the series Russia Moves into Ukraine. Tonight, I'm joined by three guests, all of whom have been with us before. We have with us Mr. Dean Chang, Colonel Retired Dave Johnson, and Dr. Brian Downing. Both Dave and Brian are PhDs in relevant subjects, and they've been fantastic contributors to the program before. Ladies and gentlemen, please also be reminded that we have another program out there, and that is Wounded But Not Broken with our host, Patrick Scroggin, who's a retired combat attack pilot who uh, had a crash in Iraq, has recovered and, and, and engaged in a heroic struggle, interviews wounded veterans and others, and has a terrific program on Monday evenings, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the podcast. We're on 12 or more platforms at this point, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, our own RSS feed. Also remember that we're not using anything other than open source material. If We have access to classified. We do not introduce it here. We only work from what we know and what you can read, and we may even suggest references. When we're speaking, we're speaking from our own personal perspective, and we avoid partisan politics as much as possible. Discussions like this get into policy, And, of course, the current administration is the one. So if we compare it to that of another administration, that is not an attempt to to compare the relative effectiveness of this government or that government. That's that's for you, the listener, to do. But any of these gentlemen tonight who does, that's their own opinion. I will avoid that. I'm Ranger Doug. I don't need an introduction because I'm just a dealer in this card game. But I'd like to have each of our guests tonight introduce themselves. Dean, over to you, sir.
2: Well, thank you for having me. Uh, My name's Dean Chang. I'm the Senior Research Fellow for Chinese Political and Security Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Um, I've been there for a bit over a decade. Before that was with uh, the Center for Naval Analysis and with SAIC and with a government agency, the Congressional Office of Technology Assessment, that has a unique uh, uh, distinguishing characteristic of no longer existing. So thank you for having me. Dave, then over
1: to you please.
3: Yeah, I'm uh Dave Johnson. I'm a principal researcher at the Rand Corporation. I'm a retired Army Colonel. I uh, spent 24 years in infantry quartermaster and field artillery branches. In the usual places, Germany, Korea, uh, around the States, and Hawaii. I was fortunate enough when I was in the Army for the Army to, send me to get a Ph.D. at Duke in History. Uh, and I study military innovation and strategy and lessons learned from joint operations. My first book was Fast Tanks and Heavy Bombers that talks about innovation in our Army. Uh, I've been around for close to 24 years, the highlight of which was actually away from Rand when I uh, stood up and directed General Ray Odierno's strategic studies group for two years. Over to you, Ranger Doug.
1: Thank you, Dave. Then Brian, over to you, please, sir. Brian down here,
4: retired acting Jack Buck sergeant. After the Army, I went to college, Georgetown University, and graduate school at uh, University of Chicago, postdoctoral at Harvard. Since then, I've been pretty
1: much a uh, freelance national security analyst. Thanks, Brian. So now we'll take our first question, and that'll be for Dean. Where are Russia and Ukraine today in the war? Over to you, sir. At this point, it would seem that
2: Russia and Ukraine are in the attritional phase. At least based on the available reporting, uh, the Russians seem to have redirected most of their forces to the east to try and, one, push the Ukrainians back and secure uh, Luhansk and Donbass. Two, to wipe out the remaining resistance, of Mariupol, to create a land bridge between Crimea and those breakaway republics. But at least some of the maps do suggest that what the Russians are also trying to do is to make deeper penetrations behind the front lines in order to give the Ukrainians a very tough choice. Do they stick it out fighting near Donbass and Luhansk to try and reclaim those territories, or do they withdraw to keep some of their best and heaviest forces out of uh, Russian hands? Mm -hmm. What also seems to have occurred, though, is that the Russians seem to pull back from Kharkiv uh, and Kiev, and are relying more on long range, imprecise strikes
1: in Western Ukraine to try and keep the population terrified. Thank you, Dean. Then I'll direct that same question to Dave Johnson. Dave, over to you, please.
3: Yeah, thanks, Ranger Doug. You know, Dean caught it very accurately. I think we're in the phase now where Russia is just going to start making a grindings forward movement as much as possible. If they can't move forward, they're just going to keep pounding people. They're going to make Ukraine pay a huge price for staying in the war. Um, My sense was that Putin's speech was interesting for what it didn't say as much as what it did say. And that is that there was no, you know, it was more of a justification why they're in the war still, not some announcement of some victory. Or any future designs. So I think you know the Kremlin is trying to figure out. You know we we'll just keep going like we are. Maybe if something will show itself, uh, that gives us some options. Um, the Ukrainians. I don't think we have any clue what the status of the Ukrainian forces are in the West. At least uh, we have a sense they're fighting a gallant fight, but I don't know the the status of their forces, how they're doing on you know how badly they're being treated. I understand the the resolute valor of defending Mariupol, but it's it's essentially the Alamo. And I'm hoping this Alamo gives Sam Houston time to marshal forces in Zelensky in this case to finally win in San Jacinto to extend the metaphor about the Texas Revolution. Back over to you, D- Doug.
1: Thank you, Dave. Those were great answers. Brian, then over to you, please. I'm watching pretty closely the Ukrainian
4: counteroffensive North of Kharkiv, they are supposedly very close, if not at the Russian border right now, which must cause some consternation in Russia. I don't think there would be any deep attack into Russia, but the Russians don't know that, and we don't have to tell them that. Another concern for Russia would be if the Ukrainians cut east from their positions north of Kharkiv. That would effectively isolate a lot of Russian forces around Izium at the northern end of the Donbass pocket, and if they have to pull back from Isium, uh they have no chance of their offensive. I mean, their offensive in the east has failed already, but if Izium is threatened, then uh, I, I think the Russian position will fold up in the northern end of that pocket. Watching partisan activity in the land bridge, supposedly a lot of Ukrainian partisans are active west of Mariupol and east of Kherson. That could cause trouble in the future. One notable thing is that Chinese television showed a few days ago a Russian tank being blown up in the eastern end of the land bridge, probably 30, 40 miles away from any Ukrainian position. That means that there are Ukrainian special forces deep into Russian-held area. And that has got to be true, not only of this area where they lost the tank, but probably across the land bridge and probably across the eastern areas that they pretty much
1: took over eight years ago. Thank you, Brian. So we'll move on then to our second question. That is, so now that the war's underway and still underway, what are the war aims of Russia, Mr. Putin, Ukraine and Mr. Zelensky? And that will be... Over to you, Dave. Yeah,
3: so we discussed last week. I think we we're speculating on what Putin's objectives are. A lot of people are saying he's looking for an off-ramp. He's trying to create some break-off republics so that will be loyal to the Kremlin. But we just really don't know. So I think on Zelensky's part, my sense is that his success and the you know the depredations visited by the Russians on the Ukrainian people have put him in a position where he's kind of backed into a corner. At this juncture, at least, I don't think he has any wiggle room to start making deals with Putin about, you know, how to end the war. I mean, I have a feeling, though, that given you know, the attrition is going to happen, you know, the clock is ticking for him, especially. Back over to you, Ranger Doug.
1: Thank you, Dave. Dean, over to you, then.
2: I have this terrible feeling that at this point we are watching two punch-drunk boxers. Both of whom have given a lot of pounding to the other side. One is nimbler, a smaller, that would be the Ukrainians, landed a lot of good punches against a sort of heavier, slower opponent, but someone who can absorb a lot of punches. And, you know, when that second, you know, boxer connects, it hurts. And neither side seems at this point to have war aims that are reconcilable. Putin needs a victory of some kind. But anything that leaves him in charge, leaves him looking victorious, is not only not going to fly in Ukraine, but is going to arouse global response, because he is the aggressor. Conversely, uh, as, as Dave Johnson pointed out, the Ukrainians have been backed into a corner. How does Zelensky survive compromising with somebody who has killed so many Ukrainians in many cases in what appear to be blatant war crimes? And unfortunately, when the United States has also said you know, that this will not stand, that the Russian leader is a war criminal, that means that nobody on the outside really can intervene because now you would appear to be saying, yeah, he's a war criminal, and that's okay. So I hate to say this, but it looks like uh, y'all. You know, not only are we in the attritional phase, but now it is just round after round of the two sides just body-blowing each other, hoping the other side will go down.
1: Great comment. Thank you. Ryan, over to you, sir.
4: I see the attrition as well, but uh, I don't think Russia can stand up to that attrition. Look at all the weapons coming into the Ukraine. Uh, They're getting more and more tanks. They're getting more and more man pads, anti-tank weapons, the switchblades. And I I think they're just taking a tremendous toll on Russian troops all across the eastern pocket and to some extent uh, north of the land bridge. Uh, We're hearing more and more stories of Russian troops refusing orders, Uh, And I I just think that the army, the Russian army, is nearing a stage where they're no longer effective. They're not going to be able to conduct offensive operations, and they may not be able to hold ground. So the initiative may be shifting to the Ukraine, whether they just want to continue wearing down the Russian army until it comes near to collapse, or actually collapses, at least in places, or launch drives. I think that uh, they should be more mindful of their own casualties, which are probably pretty high, as noted earlier. We don't know. And just continue with this stalemate. Hammer them with artillery. Hammer them with counter-battery fire. That army is not going to stand up.
1: Thank you, Brian. Looking at the world as a whole then, considering the U.S., NATO, the EU, PRC, and others, what are the things that might be underway in those quarters, as well as effects on any of the participants and or those that are not really committed, but simply supporting. And that would be over to you, Dean. I want to throw out two things, I think.
2: One is that, globally speaking, this war has already become a real problem for regional and national stability. And that's because of the massive inflation in food prices. Uh, It's, again, useful to remember that the Arab Spring that broke out now uh, over 10 years ago was triggered when food prices went up in places like Tunisia and now we are already hearing about food riots in Iran both Russia and Ukraine preoccupied. That is going to affect grain prices. It's going to affect oil, edible oils. Um, that that is huge. You can substitute among energy sources. It's very hard to substitute. At the end of the day, among staple grains and the like. The other question that I think is worth thinking about is how are the Chinese looking at this? Brian mentioned that there was Chinese video of um, a Russian tank being destroyed far behind the lines. Apparently, a. Chinese uh, former ambassador made very caustic comments about both the Russian conduct of the war and more broadly, Russian strategy. Um, right now, the two sides are aligned. They both dislike us. That won't change. But at some point, I suspect Beijing is going to look at a very weakened Moscow and think, can I turn this to my advantage? Can I curry favor in Central Asia? Can I turn to the former Soviet republics and say, look, Russia did this to Ukraine. You might want to stay on my good side to keep them from doing it to you. The flip side to that is, to what extent do the Chinese think that Russian survival is essential and Russian victory might even be useful in keeping the West at arm's length from China? Uh, Is Russia seen as essentially a uh, key player to keep the West occupied, not necessarily over Taiwan or things like that, but just more broadly speaking, as a balance of power issue of keeping Russia in the game. And if that's the case, then rather than turning on Moscow, Beijing may well choose to provide money, uh, spare parts, munitions, uh, diplomatic support in order to make sure that uh, whatever the attrition is, uh, just as the West is keeping Ukraine in the game,
1: It's in China's interest to keep Russia in the game. Thank you, Dean. We need to pause now for a commercial. This is the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 27th program, our 12th in the series. Russia moves into Ukraine. We'll be back in a moment.
0: You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Attention, looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847 754 4667. That number, again, 847 754 4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer.
1: Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com.
0: Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio R. And here's Ranger Doug.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Veterans Radio R 2.0. This is our 27th program, our 12th in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. Dean, I'd just like to follow up on your question with the idea and a question for you follow-up. Do you think that China actually is interested in seeing the world, let's say, contributing all these armaments, especially the United States, because China realizes that those are armaments, in the United States' case, for example, that cannot be quickly replenished and thus leaves the United States in a deficit, should it ever have to go against uh, a Chinese move within a, a near-term period? Over to you.
2: That's a great question. And um... Hard to say. What we do know is the following. The Chinese and most of our other adversaries pay very close attention and go through all of the supporting documents in annual budgetary hearings. So they have a pretty good sense of how many javelins we've bought, how many harpoons we've bought, how many stinger, y'all, the litany of systems. And second of all, they probably have as good or better an idea of our mobilization capacity, um, in part because they, the Chinese in particular, have been paying a lot of attention to mobilization, a lot of attention to their defense industrial complex and making sure that it can ramp up quickly, something our own system doesn't seem yet able to do. Something worth considering is, uh, I believe, that no warship, a major warship, battleships, aircraft carriers, authorized after December 7th, 1941, saw action before the peace treaty was signed on the quarterdeck of the USS Missouri. Now, that was partly a matter of circumstance. If the war had gone on for another year, certainly a number of battleships, carriers, etc., would have. But what we went to war with was literally, uh, as Donald Rumsfeld said, the Army and the Navy that, in a sense, we have in terms of large capital purchases and large vessels that take years to produce. The Chinese have hot production lines for surface combatants, for submarines, etc. They churn out a lot more than we do. And the same is probably true for a lot of their munitions. So it wouldn't surprise me if they were at least keeping a weather eye on those systems uh, that we are
1: providing to the Ukrainians. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you for following up. Then, Dave, over to you.
3: Yeah, thanks, Ranger I'm going to kind of go back to what Dean just talked about. I think the weapons issue... It's a double-edged sword, literally. The things we're giving the Ukrainians don't particularly have much utility against China and a Maritime Naval Theater. Um, javelins aren't particularly useful against amphibs or capital ships. Uh, stingers won't be useful against the, their air force unless it's a landing. But I think the other issue is, you know, the period we're talking about in World War II is what I study. The industrial base, although it didn't build a lot of battleships because there was determination made that we didn't need any more we built 137 aircraft carriers during the war. Uh, the Japanese, I think, built 13. A, a fair amount of those were jeep carriers that only had a small complement of a small air wing, but we built 2000, 2,000 Liberty ships during the war. I mean, it was a sleeping giant that, you know, Yamamoto warned about. So I think one of the unintended consequences here of this war for our adversaries, we've been talking about the industrial base forever. Uh, It's not robust enough. It's not doing stuff. Well, this is the first time there's really been a demand on it in a lot of different end items. We've had demands for hellfires and other things over time and the, you know, the ubiquitous MRAP that we're stuck with forever now. We have never really mobilized this country in a real surge capacity. I think we can build three F thirty fives a week right now if we're all all in. So I think it's going to force us to take a look at what we're really capable of. The other really unintended consequences we we talked about a little bit last week, but you know, Finland joining NATO and Sweden are like momentous events that have not occurred since the Cold War. Um this is a direct poke in Putin's eye that says, you know, we don't trust you. We're gonna we are now going to finally line up with the West formally talking about letting Ukraine into the EU, despite what Macron says. But I think what we're going to see also, I think the alliance when winter comes and there's no natural gas flowing like there has been in the past is when the sanctions are really going to start to make people go, how long is this going to last? Uh, Dean's absolutely right. What started the the Arab Spring was mostly cooking oil. And a lot of that comes from Ukraine. That and uh, much of the wheat that goes to the Middle East and Africa. So these shortages, we all kind of know they're coming And I think there's just almost a sense, well, yeah, this will be over before then. I think our discussion tonight shows that, you know, maybe it's not going to be over before then. My view, most likely it won't be. Back over to you, Ranger Doug.
1: Great answer, Dave. Ryan, over to you, sir.
4: You know, on the issue of World War II and war production, uh, we all know what the American economy did. Uh, It was coming out of depression with orders from Western Europe as uh, war seemed coming. Uh, But what's going on in Russia today? The war industries are laying people off. They cannot get spare parts or production parts. They cannot get semiconductors. A lot of the electronic, electrical, excuse me, electronic components were coming in from Germany and other European countries. Well, they're not coming in anymore. So there's not much coming out of the war industries. There's certainly not enough. We're seeing reports that uh, Russian industry is trying to use semiconductors from household appliances on advanced. Military systems. Well, that's that's not going to do very well. Now, Putin is talking about a long war. Now, at least that's what the CIA is telling us. If he's in a long war and his and his war industries are grinding down, um, there's not going to be a long war. His troops are going to run out of equipment. We're already hearing that their PGMs don't work very well. That they're using more and more dumb bombs because they're out of smart bombs. Uh, apparently the Ukrainians have hacked into the drone systems of uh, Russia, and they fly a little while, and then they're ordered to crash into the ground. So I think we're seeing a big contrast between the American war effort in World War II, which just went on and on, churned out those jeep carriers mentioned, I think it was one a week or something like that at one point. Well, the Russian war industry has ground to a halt. In fact, it's in decline. They cannot fight this war for more than a few more months. Back to you, Ranger Doc.
1: Thank you very much, Brian. That was a great round. So we're ready to hit our fourth question, and that is, what is the status of any ceasefire or peace efforts or truce efforts? And that question goes first to Dave. Dave, over to you, sir.
3: Putin is not inclined at this point to come to a peace table unless he's going to get something that he wants and can, you know, it meets some kind of war aim, whatever that happens to be at the moment. Uh, I think Zelensky, like I said earlier, is paying himself into a corner and we've helped him get there uh, by saying we're in this to win it. Like I said, the depredations that have been suffered by the Ukrainian people are, you know, nothing that you can really kind of say, well, we're going to go talk peace now. There was a video clip on one of the news channels on CNN. Two Russian soldiers were captured on a security camera to in an auto dealer where they're just walking away from these Russian soldiers and the two guys just fire them up murder them their backs are turned they're just walking slowly away and, and they, they fire them up they've already started prosecution of a number of war crimes trials of POWs that they captured so this is going to take on a a life of its own in some ways that are going to make any kind of diplomatic moves extraordinarily difficult. And I think from the Western perspective, and rightly so, I'm not saying this is wrong, we are no longer an honest broker in this. We've taken sides and just about anybody in the world, with a very few exceptions, I mean, China might be the only honest broker left that would have any clout in anything with Russia. So I think it's this is not going to... And diplomatically anytime soon.
1: Back over to you, Ranger Doug. Thanks, Dave. Dean, over to you with that same question then, please. Well, I think that, um, I, first off,
2: I don't disagree with anything Dave said. Um, so rather than saying, yes, I agree, uh, I want to note that we are confronted with two very troubling issues. One is that World War One demonstrated that when you run out of munitions, you don't go to the peace table. You keep going you just pile up more bodies. Um, the French, the Germans, who were probably the best prepared, the Brits, the Russians, everybody ran through their pre-war stocks of munitions uh, because expenditure rates were just enormously higher. And that didn't prevent four years of grinding trench warfare. Um, and that is a reminder that nations have a lot of resources, including people that sometimes they are just willing to throw into the fray, especially after losses have to now be made, quote unquote, worthwhile. Um, I'm reminded of, of the last line, rarely cited, of In Flanders Fields. You know, In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow between the crosses row and row. The last stanza, which most people don't remember, is take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw, the torch be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders Fields. I mean, here you are in some of the most concentrated horribleness of the 20th century. And John McCrae who was serving in the battle lines, was saying, don't give up, make our sacrifice worthwhile. And this brings us to, I think, our second really worrisome issue, which is, if the Russians are running out of munitions, if the Russians are actually losing the war, at the end of the day, Mr. Putin still has nuclear weapons. Is it unthinkable to use them in order to, quote unquote, win the war? You know, you get into the whole, can you win a nuclear war? That's one thing between superpowers. Ukraine doesn't have nuclear weapons. Is it inconceivable that anything from a demonstration shot to a decapitated, or presumably decapitating strike aimed at the Ukrainian government to battlefield use, anything so that at the end of the day, Mr. Putin can say, we won. And it may be a Pyrrhic victory, from our perspective, is it still Pyrrhic if it allows him to stay in power, uh, to destroy Ukraine, to intimidate adversaries, both domestic and foreign, so that he can stay in power? I don't think we've confronted yet the answer to that question, because I'm not sure we've really thought down that path very much.
1: Over to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Dean. Brian, over to you. Well, I'll pick up on the issue
4: of... uh... Putin using nuclear weapons, it's certainly uh, a possibility, as Dean sketched there. Um, however, about every week, it seems, someone in the Russian government rattles the nuclear saber, if there is such a thing as a nuclear saber, and uh, and then a few days later, they walk it back. Now, I'm not sure of the dynamics behind that, but I would suspect that there's resistance in the army, and perhaps more importantly, there's direct criticism from China say you do not use nuclear weapons. It's just a whole different game. You will never get out of sanctions if you use you have to rethink things there. Uh, but I can't say he
1: won't use them. Back to you, Ranger Dog. Thank you, Brian. We'll take a moment for a commercial. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, Our twelfth in the series, Russia moves into Ukraine with we'll the back in a- Stay tuned, we'll be right back.
0: The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of this storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas
1: Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years.
0: Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Mention all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug.
1: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 27th program, our 12th in this series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. Tonight, I'm joined by Mr. Dean Chang, Dr. Brian Downing, and Dr. Dave Johnson. We're now into our fifth question. What can we look forward to in the coming weeks? Any further thoughts which you may want to tack on to any earlier answer? And that would go to Dean first. Dean, over to you. Well,
2: um, unless something changes, I suspect that we are going to be in the attritional phase for a while. As the weather improves, however, and the ground firms up, Russian forces will have more of the option of maneuvering, assuming that their lower level officers and uh, NCOs and small unit commanders are able to really operate um, away from a centralized top-down directive approach. If they were able to do so, um, it would complicate Ukrainian defense efforts. But uh, again, it would require a higher level of performance than I think we've seen thus far from the Russian military. The other thing I think that we are likely to see is um, I think that the Chinese uh, face with their own domestic problems, COVID issues, lockdown, etc. cetera, Um, heading towards the 20th party Congress this fall are very soon going to want to, they're not going to push for peace. I don't think that that's in the Chinese nature to sort of try and intervene or negotiate or broker a deal, but I think they are going to start probably saying, look, whatever else we don't want a big surprise. We've got a lot on our own plate. And insofar as Beijing has influence over Moscow, um, to build on, on, on Brian's earlier point, I think that you may well see, at that point, a lot of pressure of whatever else you do, don't use chemicals, don't use nukes, don't use anything extraordinary like that, um, because that is going to make our lives a lot more complicated, and we don't want that.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Dean. Dave, over to
2: you.
3: Yeah, um, yeah it sounded kind of like a broken record for the last couple of weeks and every question. I think we see more of the same. Um, as everybody's talked about, the Russians are grinding it out. Um, they're going through lots of people, lots of material. Uh, I, again, I don't know how much is happening on the Ukrainian side as far as people and, and material losses, but you can assume it's something. There was a, a website that had Russian and Ukrainian aircraft losses as of 20 March. and they were significant, on, about even on both sides. And these are based on videos of actual destroyed systems, so I think it's going to grind on. I, you know, I, I, I love the poem that Dean cited, uh, but the last stanza is, you know, the kind of the rallying call that would lead to more years of, of horror. Um, I tend to look at the last um, poets who wrote about, you know, gas attacks. And, you know, there's no such thing as an audible death in war um, to give your life to your country. That's how much British opinion had changed. And that opinion drug over into the 20s and 30s and really affected their foreign policy. So I, uh, I again, I mean, I, I wish I knew. Uh, I'm Like I said before, I think only Putin knows how he wants to end this. and I don't think he knows that yet. Uh, Zelensky. Um, I mean, there's there's no room in this for him to do anything other than what he's doing right now, except keep asking for more from the West, because that is clearly what's enabling him to keep up the pressure he's keeping up. But I I'm not hopeful. Uh, I think we'll have the same conversation next week, the week after, uh, maybe longer in the future than that. Uh, given how this is going. Back over here, Ranger Doug.
1: The great thing about your comment, Dave, is we truly don't know what's going to go on because, of course, this is a very new war being conducted in the face of an information environment that's pervasive. And we'll touch on that a little bit in the lightning round in a few minutes. Brian, then over to you, sir.
4: Uh, My view is that Russia cannot take this stalemate. That the arms coming in to Ukrainian side, the artillery, the counter battery artillery, the switch blades, everybody who makes a, an anti-tank system or a man pad is sending them off to the Ukraine for trial and uh, on the job training. Uh, I, I think the Russian army is going to lose any dis- uh, lose its offensive punch and its capacity to hold large parts of the Donbass in the next few weeks or months. Um, this, of course, brings back to the issue of what Russia is doing to the cities, that they are still launching cruise missiles and ballistic missiles into cities, and they're doing a great deal of damage. I don't know how many are being shot down by Ukrainian forces, uh, but it, I don't think it's enough. So I would like to see more and more air defenses go into Ukraine. I have floated the idea, and I I'd appreciate comments from people who are more knowledgeable of these systems than I have. Uh, send in a Patriot system. Don't announce it, just send it in. Who's gonna operate it? Possibly American forces in Poland could operate it more or less remotely. Alternately, there could be some GIs who are in uniform at Fort Sill today, who could somehow get discharges and be in on the Ukrainian front in a few days, manning the Patriot systems. I'll throw that idea out. discussion.
1: That's a great comment. I think that uh, uh, we'll hit on something related to that in the lightning round. But, you know, I'm I'm thinking now that similar to what the U.S. was able to do with the Predator and other systems, where it might be serviced and flown by someone in theater, but was actually being targeted from an area outside Nellis Air Force Base, we probably need to ramp up our air defense capabilities quite a bit, but then develop the ability to target them from distance while having them held and serviced in a field environment. That would allow us to support something like this without putting our own people in harm's way, at least for the shooting of the weapons. Because obviously air defense is going to have to become a real priority, but it's not just the air defense on the order of a patriot, which is a fairly high altitude system. There need to be systems like the uh, Israeli Iron Dome or, or something electromagnetic that can actually reduce the ability of drones to strike at you and other things we're seeing. So there's a lot in this war that still has to be uh, worked out. Okay, so now we've come to our our final uh, round of of questions and answers, and similar to Jeopardy!, I've got a question, and I'm looking for a volunteer. So first question is, is the info environment extending the war, meaning, in other words, with all the narratives that are running around and everyone in support of one side or the other, is that extending the war, and if so, how could the info environment be changed to shorten the war?
3: Yeah, let me take that one, Ranger Doug. So I don't, it's hard to tell what its effect is on the extension of the war. What I think it has done in the West is you know, bring everybody in on the side of Ukraine. Part of that is because the Ukrainians have done just a masterful job of managing the narrative. All the information we get, partly is because the Russians don't share much, but in what they do share is not credible in our eyes, which means obviously then the Ukrainian information is credible. Ones that are letting the reporters go where they let them, and the reporters go there because you know it's a war zone. If they go somewhere else, they might get killed, which has happened. So I think that gives a huge advantage to the Ukrainians for external support. It's also fragile because the same information that shows your valor and your ability to stand up for the Russians, if all of a sudden that story changes radically with a huge defeat you know, it could really come start to unravel as well, why did that happen when you told us this? Or you know, what's going on here? If that doesn't happen, it obviously keeps people supporting the Ukraine, which as long as it's supported, you know, this war can go on. It's when they lose that support that I think there's a, a real problem. On the Russian side Putin is using it internally. He's shut down the press pretty much. You know, any journalist that has an opinion other than the war is a good idea is leaving Russia uh, with good reason. And so I think what the war has done is build almost, It's you don't need a propaganda organ anymore that's state run if you have clever people managing your information campaign. The message speaks for itself. The medium is a message in many ways now, as Marshall McLuhan once said a long time ago. Back to you, Ranger
1: Doug. Thank you, Dave. That was a great answer. Tough question. We'll take a moment for a commercial. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. Our 12th in the series, Russia, moves into Ukraine. We'll be back in a moment.
0: You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. We'll be right back. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of this storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast
1: Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com.
0: Attention all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC we're back and here's your co-host ranger Doug.
1: ladies and gentlemen welcome back to veterans radio r 2.0 this is our 27th program our 12th in the series russia moves into ukraine is the disparity of equipment Going to pose a problem for Ukraine as it tries to integrate the various types of systems from different countries, the logistical problems, and even amongst systems like say MiGs, different MiG variants from different countries might sound like they're a good idea, but in fact, it might drive Ukrainians off the real task, which is to integrate quickly, train up if necessary, and fight with what they know and what they have, and try to get more of the same stuff. I'm looking for someone to take that question since Dave is already taken one he obviously doesn't need to take it that leaves two over to you uh brian here i can take
4: we're seeing a lot of different armored vehicles self-propelled guns infantry fighting vehicles coming into ukraine uh that's very welcome it does present problems uh driving these vehicles is actually very easy i learned that at fort knox many many years ago uh Driving them around just isn't all that hard. Driving it around really well is a separate thing, but that will come in time. Using the various targeting systems, communication systems on those various vehicles, that is more of a challenge. More of a challenge still is maintenance. Armored vehicles are mechanical problems. They have there's a lot of weight. Uh, you need to change the filters very, very frequently. Uh, there's a lot of mud and dirt flying up there. More mud in Ukraine, as I understand it. And so maintaining all these things is uh, really going to be
1: problematic. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate you taking that. Then the final question in this round: What is the prospect of Russia possibly expanding the war by attacking those that are attempting to supply or resupply the Ukrainians, even to include attacking outside Ukraine in places like Poland and other places? And what has the way that companies and nations and individuals have jumped on the bandwagon to support one side or the other, principally the Ukrainians, what has that done to the concept that we long have followed, which is neutrality? And that one then, Dean, would be over to you.
2: Um, well, I mean, the, the question being really sort of, of uh, what is happening to our entire concept of neutrality? Um, you know in the 1930s, we took the position we did the Reuben James was you know occurring because we had said we believe in neutrality and other countries believed in neutrality and when you were neutral, you sort of you could still sell arms, but that was about it we're providing a lot more than just munitions, right Intel targeting info, etc, if you believe the leaks that's neutrality is pretty. Bear, threadbare at this point. It, all it means is American troops are present. And if you look at what you folks are talking about regarding patriots, well, we're in Poland, we're running this thing outside Lvov. Wow. Why wouldn't I target the command center in Poland? Because you're, you're neutral? Not really. So that, that's my other question, which is separate, but a huge issue, which is what does neutrality even mean at the end of this war?
1: Dean, thank you. That's a, that's a great answer. And you know, that question strikes me as being so rich. I'd like to open it up to, to Dave and Brian. So Dave, if you care to take a whack at that, please do.
3: Yeah. So I, I really agree with Dean. Um, I just think we've been away from these kinds of issues for so long that we've kind of forgotten the rules that we learned over centuries. I don't see neutrality having any virtue at this juncture the way we've eroded it. Um, and the role of the private sector is different, the role of commercial information systems. This is just very different. And it's not that the old rules don't apply. I don't think we remember the old rules well enough to try and understand what's going on through those lenses. So we've taken sides So that we're going all in for the winner that we want and without really appreciating what the consequences are. Somehow we've established this kind of mental model that says as long as an American doesn't physically shoot at a Russian – Inside the Ukraine or Russia, there's no harm, no foul. Uh, I don't think the Russians are going to view it that way now or much longer. Over here, Ranger Doug.
1: Thank you, Dave. And Brian, over to you, sir.
3: Well, on the
4: issue of uh, supplies coming in from the West, uh, I think about two weeks ago, Russia started targeting rail lines in the West, uh, especially rail yard uh, junctions, trying to disrupt that flow. Why they waited so long uh, is something we'll just have to uh, hope we get to see the Russian archives someday. Uh, But I think the number of attacks on the supply systems have gone down in the last week, possibly because Russia doesn't have the PGMs to target these things. And uh, if you're trying to target something as small as a rail line or even a rail yard, uh, you need something fairly precise. Railroads are pretty easy to repair. The Germans certainly found that out during World War II. We found that out too. As far as attacking inside a NATO country, if five Russian MiGs crossed into Poland, I don't think five would get back. I think they'd be intercepted very close to the border by other fighters and or anti-aircraft systems. I don't think they could uh, risk a broader war. I think the Russian options of interrupting supply channels outside of Ukraine are pretty tough. If five Russian fighters crossed into Polish or uh, Slovakian territory, I think they'd be intercepted very, very quickly, either by NATO fighters or by patriot systems. And uh, I don't think it would end well for the Russians. Uh, Maybe a special forces team going in, that probably would be a more viable option for the Russians. Security against the Russians, uh, I don't think the Russian operations would be very successful, but that uh, is something they might try. Neutrality, is the United States neutral? Is NATO neutral? Is Poland neutral? No, not really. I think this war has shown that you don't have to be in NATO to benefit enormously from NATO and even defeat what was supposed to be the second greatest
1: military in the world. Thank you, Brian. That then closes this round. And I think uh, we'll just run one last question. And anyone who cares to answer, I will also uh, append an answer to this past question and answer this myself. Uh, What do you think is the chance of a famine anywhere in the world? specifically caused by the fact that, at least in Ukraine, probably in parts of Russia, probably in parts of Belarus, planting did not go on at the normal level, if at all, during the war. Uh, Brian, can you take that one?
4: I can offer some thoughts. I think it's a very high probability. We're seeing grain prices going up. Uh, I noticed that at uh, my local grocery store yesterday. Uh, But that's not terribly important globally. But there are so many countries where food insecurity, that's the term, is quite high. And these things are, are the chief causes of instability in many parts of the developing world. So I think across North Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, we're going to see deep trouble for any number of regimes. Some friendly to us, some not friendly at all to us. Uh, and there's just no workaround. You know, you can pump more oil, get more gas from some places, but wheat and corn—they're uh, a little more difficult to uh, replace. And it would take—it would take years to do that.
1: Great, and I—I I agree. I think we're going to see not only famine, or at least. Food, whatever we want to call it, shortages in various parts of the world, but there there may be actual problems in many parts of the developed world because the lack of hydrocarbons has actually created a situation where you're going to see less fertilizer, which will actually affect many other parts of the world. And then, of course, the world will immediately attempt to try to provide food to the various places that are affected. The problem always is when doing that, you choke supply lines. Can the food actually be distributed? Our experience in Somalia shows us that any place that there isn't a stable government. Somebody will pirate the food, and all of a sudden what you've tried to do that seems a good thing becomes a weapon. So that uh, basically concludes our program for the evening. want to thank you all for joining us. Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 27th program, our 12th in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. This is Ranger Doug. Remember, we are on at least 12 different platforms right now, including Spotify, Apple, iHeart, and uh, amazon our own rss feed as well you can find us in all of those places subscribe if you get the opportunity general grange is not with us tonight but we anticipate to be back in the coming weeks we had a great panel tonight consisting of dr dave johnson dr brian downing and mr dean chang great discussion by all and we thank our guests very much this is a guest-driven program oriented on our veterans our serving service people and those who are citizens that support the effort we remain political, We do our best to stay current. You'll get facts here, our own personal opinions. But as I say, we, we try to avoid partisan politics. Thank you again. Ranger Doug out.
0: Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, No One Left Behind.